to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. If you were here last week, uh, you know what's happening in chapter 15. But for those of you who weren't here, uh, chapter 15 begins with a message from the, the prophet Samuel to the first king of Israel, King Saul. And it was a, a message telling Saul to send an army to the Amalekites um, to devote them to destruction. And you'll remember that we, we discussed that very terrifying reality of, of divine judgment. How do we understand that, that justice of God in the, the call at the beginning of, of chapter 15? And so if you, if you want to explore that more, you can go back and listen to that sermon either on Facebook or online. But Saul started to obey the command of God. He went to war against the Amalekites, but then he, he spared the best of the cattle, the best of the, the oxen and the sheep, and he kept alive Agag, the king of the Amalekites, when he should have devoted him to destruction following the, the just, holy command of God. And just as a side note before we read our text, um, as I was praying about what's going on in Israel, and I, as I was reading more about Agag, that apparently the, the Amalekites and Agag specifically have been an important theme for the Jewish people throughout history, that there was an identification with, of the Nazis with the Amalekites because the Amalekites especially would target the, the weak and the, the vulnerable at the back of the army uh, when they were, were fighting. And, and then also, uh, if you remember Haman in the story of Esther, he was called an Agagite following in the footsteps of Agag, the king of the Amalekites that we'll see in our text today who sought the, the eradication of the people of Israel. So that's more of a, a side note in light of recent events. But as we pick up today in verse 24, Samuel confronts Saul in his disobedience. Saul, as he does over and over again, he makes excuses. He, he says, well, we, we saved the, the sheep and the cattle in order to offer them to the Lord as a sacrifice. And the key verse from last week was verse 22 where Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? That the, the key theme is obedience. And then in verse 24, this conversation between King Saul and Samuel continues. So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord 
has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders and my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, would be pleasing, would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. You could imagine living in the 4th century A.D., around 390, 390 years after the birth of Christ. And it would have been a remarkable time to live because for older people growing up, Christianity was still illegal. They still faced persecution in the Roman Empire. But by the end of the 4th century, Christianity had become not only legal, but the official religion of the Roman Empire. And in an amazing turn of providence, the emperor, Theodosius I, was a professed Christian, that, that the emperor himself was a, a baptized believer. But then the world was unsettled by an action of that emperor, because in 390 there was a, a riot in the, the city of Thessalonica after a chariot race, and a prominent Roman official was murdered by the mob, and so the emperor ordered the Roman army to go into the city, and there was a, a massacre of innocent people in the city of Thessalonica, and it came at the order of this supposed Christian emperor. And so word spread, people were shocked, people were grieved, and word came to a prominent pastor named Ambrose in the city of Milan. 
And if you know who Augustine is, Ambrose was one of the preachers that Augustine listened to before he was a Christian, so he helped lead Augustine to faith. Um, He was well known for his bold preaching and his proclamation of scripture, his careful biblical teaching. And he knew that this behavior of the emperor was inconsistent with God's standard laid out in scripture. And so he wrote a bold letter putting his own life at risk to the emperor, calling him to repentance, telling him that God's law is above the emperor, that the the emperor himself is, is subject to the holy law of God, and that he would be barred from celebration of the Lord's Supper and from participation in the life of the church until he publicly repented and acknowledged his sin. And then in another amazing turn of events for, for a, a Roman empire where the, the emperor had been seen as God himself, that the emperor humbled himself, he publicly repented of his sin, he turned back to the Lord, and it was a great day for Christianity, for the church of the time. And of course, we don't know where his heart was, that only God knows the heart. Is repentance true, genuine repentance, or is it a, a fake, hypocritical repentance? But of course, a thousand years before the time of Theodosius I, we see King Saul here in our text. And as he's confronted by another fiery preacher, not Ambrose, but by the fiery preacher Samuel, that he gives a certain type of repentance. It seems at first that he, in fact, is repenting, as we'll see. But as we continue through the book of 1 Samuel, and even in this text, we discover that it wasn't true, genuine heart repentance, that it was a counterfeit, fake form of repentance. And then, of course, for us, that presents a problem, that we are called to repentance as believers. But how do we know the difference between true, genuine repentance and then a, a fake, counterfeit form of repentance? Or we could put the question another way, what are the marks of true repentance? And so we'll look today at three marks of true repentance, and we'll look at these marks of true repentance as we look at this false repentance of King Saul in our text. And hopefully we can learn lessons about the nature of true repentance in our own lives as we consider the call of Scripture to repent of our sin and to to turn to Christ. And so the first mark of true repentance is this. True repentance acknowledges sin. That true repentance acknowledges sin. Now, sometimes we think that is what repentance is only, that it's only an acknowledgement of sin. And so we could say that that repentance isn't less than an open acknowledgement of sin, but it's more than that, as we'll see. But we see this throughout the Scriptures, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, 
he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you see that conditional phrase, if we confess our sins. That the, the true repentance and turning to the Lord involves an open acknowledgement of sin. And you see this in another king of Israel, the king that came after King Saul, King David. And today as we walk through Saul's fake repentance, we'll use David as a contrast. So remember how, how David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband murdered. And then when he is confronted by another fiery prophet to the king, by the prophet Nathan, he said, I sinned against the Lord in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that he acknowledges his sin. I have sinned. And even reflecting on that repentance in Psalm 35, 32, verse 5, David says, praying to the Lord, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so, open acknowledgement of sin is an important component of true repentance. But then how do we see this in our text? Well, look at the very first verse in the passage that I read, verse 24. And look at what Saul says to Samuel. He says, I have sinned. It's the exact same phrase that David uses when he is confronted by the prophet Nathan. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your word. That there is open acknowledgement of sin. But then he even goes further and delves into the motivations behind his sin. He says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And it's often the fear of man, living in light of what other people will think that drives patterns of sin. That when he became king, Samuel said that the king would need to fear the Lord, but instead of fearing the Lord, he feared man. He feared what his people would think, and it drove him to sin. But then we can learn in a positive sense from Saul here in the text that when we sin, it's right to acknowledge our sin, to say, I have sinned. Very simple words, but hard to say. I have sinned. And maybe even to trace that sin to its root, that I, I was living in the fear of man. I was living in pride. I was living in a desire to satisfy myself rather than to, to serve God and to serve others. So we are called to this kind of repentance, this confession and acknowledgement of our sin. But then there's also a warning here. Because as I said, this is a fake repentance from King Saul. That this isn't true, genuine repentance. And so we learn that somebody can say, I have sinned, and can openly acknowledge sin without actually repenting of sin in their hearts, 
without a true turning from sin to God, looking to his mercy. And you see this several times in the pages of Scripture. For example, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, during the the period of the Exodus, when the, the ten plagues were coming on Egypt, after the, in the midst of the plagues, Pharaoh called Moses to himself, and he said, this time I have sinned. The same phrase, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. So there was an open acknowledgement of sin, but then immediately it turned to a hard and impenitent heart until he was destroyed, until Egypt itself was destroyed in his hardness of heart. Or consider Judas in the New Testament in Matthew 27. It says in Matthew 27, verse 3, that when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so there you hear that same phrase from David, from Saul, from Pharaoh, from Judas, who then after that takes his own life, that it's, it wasn't a true repentance. And it's what we read from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. It says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And so there is what he calls godly grief leading to life and hope and peace without regret. And then there is worldly grief that produces death. And that's the kind of grief that we see here from Saul. It's a, the worldly grief that would lead ultimately to death for Saul and for his house and for his son, Jonathan. Again, that's then our, our first mark of true repentance. That true repentance acknowledges sin. And it's an important piece, but it's not the whole picture. Because this is where we move then into the second mark of true repentance, that it acknowledges sin, but in the midst of that acknowledgement, true repentance looks to God. True repentance acknowledges sin. True repentance looks to God. Remember how David looked to God in the midst of his true repentance. In Psalm 51, verse 4, as he reflects on his sin of adultery and, and murder, he says, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And you read that and you say, Really, David? Against you and you only have I sinned? You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against the child that was born of that union who would die in, in infancy. You sinned against your 
wife. You sinned against the people of Israel. There was really no one that he didn't sin against in that sin. But yet he says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. That he recognized that all sin at root is about our relationship with God. It's about the God whose law we violated. It's about the God who created the people whom we sinned against. That that is, that is part of the heart of, of true repentance is seeing the offense is against God first and foremost. But then look at how this plays out in the life of Saul in our text. Look at verse 25 in your Bible. It says, this is still Saul speaking. He says, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And do you catch the, the problem with his repentance? Who is he asking to forgive his sin? That in a sense he's speaking to the prophet. He's saying, Samuel, please forgive my sin and return with me. But he's not speaking to God. There's no vertical dimension to his repentance. That, that he's giving lip service to his sin while keeping God at arm's length and, and not turning to God himself in repentance and in faith. But then we can so often do the same thing. You can think in the history of the church how people say, well, I'm going to go to a priest and confess to the priest, and then the priest will forgive me instead of going directly to God in repentance. Or we sin against others, and we rightly go to them to seek forgiveness, but then we, we leave it there, that we only are seeking the forgiveness of other people whom we have sinned against while ignoring the God whom we have sinned against, the, the one who ultimately stands as the judge over us in the midst of our sin. So we, we're called then to, to look to God, that when you fall short of God's standard, don't keep God at arm's length, but follow the pattern of, of David who prays to God, who, who looks to God for forgiveness and acceptance, knowing that in Christ, God is merciful, that he will forgive us. It's what I quoted earlier from 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we can go boldly to God, claiming the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus as we look to him in true repentance and faith. So that is then the second mark of true repentance. We said that it acknowledges sin. The true repentance looks to God. And then here's the, the third and the final mark of true repentance that we can draw out of our text today. That true, rep true repentance is willing to lose face. That true repentance is willing to lose face. And we see this from David in his true repentance. That after he was confronted, after he repented to the Lord... Listen to what it says in 2 Samuel 12, 16. 
it says that David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And so you can see that his, his men are around him, and, and he's, he's fasting, he's laying on the ground, and it, and it was this humiliating position for a king. But that David wasn't very concerned about how he was going to be viewed by his men and by his subjects and by his servants and by his soldiers, that he was concerned with God and his relationship to God and seeking the, the mercy of God for the child that he knew was sick and that was going to die. And you see the same pattern in the book of Jonah. After Jonah preaches to Nineveh and the word comes to the king, it says that the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That he was willing to lose face for the sake of repentance. But then look at what Saul does in verse 30. Look there in your Bible. Then he said, I have sinned. He repeats the same phrase again. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people. And before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. That he sinned against the Lord. He's heard the, the judgment that he would be rejected by God. And then he's still concerned about the honor that he will have before his men. He said, Come and honor me before the men. And it reminds me of a, of a politician who commits adultery, and then it's found out by his wife. And he's more concerned about maintaining the appearance to his constituents, that he wants to seem like an, an upstanding moral figure. And so rather than having his concern be his relationship with God and relationship with his wife, that, that he wants to, to hold hands on the stage and smile and act like everything is okay, instead of being willing to come clean, to acknowledge his sin, to lose face, for the sake of repentance. But then we can do the, the same thing. That we want repentance and our dignity. We want to acknowledge our sin and have everybody think that we are great, upstanding people all of the time. But part of repentance is a willingness to, to be humbled, to be seen for what we are in the midst of our sin, to not put on a show to God or to others in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And I actually was talking about this with, with RJ this week and telling him about this point in my sermon, and he said, it's better to lose face than to lose grace. I thought, thank you, RJ, that's a great phrase, so <laughs> I have to give him credit for it. But it's better to lose face than to lose grace. That when we fail to repent trying to save face, and we miss the reality of grace, of, of the grace that is on offer to us, well, then we lose everything. We have nothing left. And yes, of course, there's wisdom in, in how public repentance needs to be. 
Uh, they often say that our, our repentance only needs to be as public as our sin. So if a sin is a more private sin that's only known to a few, then repentance can be a, in a smaller circle, maybe a pastor and the person you sinned against. But if a sin is a public sin known to everyone, then often it's wise for the repentance to be public as well. And of course, that would have been the case for Saul. Everybody knew that he sinned, and so his repentance needed to be as public as his sin. But he wanted to save his dignity. He lost faith and lost grace in the end. But then what happens when we fail to repent? Well, we see the, the tragic example of Saul in this text. When, when our repentance is a fake repentance, we lose everything. Look at verse 26 in your Bible. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. That the failure to truly repent and return to the Lord means rejection. Reject, rejection from God at the day of judgment. Or look at, at verse 27 as well. I think that this is one of the most personal, pitiful scenes in the Bible. That in verse 27, that Saul turned to go away. Samuel, uh, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And most scholars think that he held on to the tassels that Jews wear on their robes that ironically symbolizes obedience to the commandments of God. And then that tore away. And then Samuel uses that as an object lesson in the moment to say, as this tore, so the kingdom has been torn away from you, that, that the failure to repent leads to a tearing away of all that we hold dear. But then also you see the, the grief that it brings in verse 35. Final verse in our text, it says that Samuel did not see Saul again until his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. That when we fail to repent and turn to the Lord, that it brings grief to our pastors, to our spiritual mentors, to our family, to those who love the Lord and love us. It brings grief. But then it says as well that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And that's another one where you can go back and listen to the sermon last week that we said in, in verse 29. It says that God does not have regret. Here it says that he does have regret. And it's saying in two different senses, that in one sense, God and his unchangeable eternal purpose does not have regret. His plans are always accomplished. But yet in another sense, as you see in verse 30, that God grieved over Saul, that he had regret for Saul. That when we fail to repent and truly from the heart, that it not only grieves the heart of those who love us, but it, it grieves the very tender heart of God toward us. That, as it says in the New Testament, that we can grieve this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. That's the cost of a failure to 
repent. And of course, you see the cost of the failure to repent in Agag as well. That shocking scene where Samuel then carries out the obedience that Saul failed to do. But it says that, that Agag came cheerful. He thought that judgment had passed. There was, there was no repentance. There was no turning. There was no acknowledgement of sin. And it led to, to judgment. This terrifying reality. And so the call for all of us then is true repentance. Not just a verbal acknowledgement of sin, but this, this heart that, that aches, acknowledging our sin, turning to God, knowing his love, knowing his mercy, and, and knowing that that is in fact why Jesus came into the world. That Jesus came into the world to make repentance possible. Because without Jesus and his work on the cross, we could acknowledge our sin all day, but our guilt and our, the judgment that we would face would still be there. But Jesus came and he lived the, the perfect life. And as you can see what is symbolized in this meal, that, that his, his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us so that we can repent and so that we can experience complete and utter forgiveness. And just as Agag faced the, the judgment of God being struck down, it says, in the presence of the Lord, well, so Jesus was struck down in the presence of the Lord, taking the judgment of God, not because of his sin, but because of, of our sin, because of our failure, because of our rebellion, that the Savior was rejected on the cross, that Saul was justly rejected, that he was torn away from fellowship with God. But on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that he was rejected by God, not because of his sin or any failure of repentance on his part, but that he experienced that, that rupture, that tearing, as the, not just the garment of Samuel tore, but as the curtain of the temple tore open to give us access into the most holy place, into the very presence of God, so that we can come confessing our sins, looking to Jesus, knowing that in him, all of our sin is counted to him on the cross. His perfect righteousness is counted to us. That we're not just forgiven then, that we are accepted as sons and daughters, brought into the, the family of God and all the rights and, and privileges. Such a great call to us to turn from our sin to the true fountain of living water. And of course, as we come to this meal, we see the, the picture of this fountain of water. But if you're here and you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, we're, we're glad that you're here. But this meal is for those who have repented of their sins, who acknowledge their sin before God and are turning to Jesus for salvation. And, and so we always say that this is not a, a meal for those who are good, but it's an, a meal for those who acknowledge that they are not good and that they desperately need Jesus as a savior. And so if you're, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus, we encourage you to stay seated, to watch this unfold. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church or a Presbyterian Church, but to be one who is trusting in Christ, has made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, not bound by the action of another church from taking this, but 
but one that can join in professing the faith that we hold. So let's profess this faith. This is what we believe about God and his work for us as we turn from sin to Christ in true repentance and faith. So church, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Because in the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come down the center aisle whenever you're ready. Um, I'll be over here. Um, actually, Bruce, would you mind holding? the um, juice. Um, and so you can come along the, the line here. I'll break off a piece of bread and um, give it to you. You can take the cup, uh, return to your, your chair. And we also have uh, the gluten-free. And if mobility is an issue, Ernie uh, will bring this around uh, to you. But let's pray as we come to this meal. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy that is new every morning. Lord, we pray that you would grant us repentance le leading to life, uh, that we wouldn't hold on to death, we wouldn't hold on to sin, we wouldn't hold on to a desire to save face, but I pray that we would be willing to admit our sin, that we can turn to you looking to your forgiveness, that we can uh, be willing to, to lose face in order to to experience your grace at work in our life. And so, Father, we, we pray for anyone today who is holding on to sin, not turning to you in the midst of it, that, that you would work repentance in them by your grace. Lord, we, we pray for those who have repented and turned to Jesus, that, that you would help us to remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we would know the, the boldness and the access that we have and complete forgiveness and acceptance through Jesus, that we wouldn't continue to live as if we have not been forgiven, but that as we come to this meal, we can both examine our hearts and our sin, but then also be strengthened in your service. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So please stand with me if you're able. You can turn to page 10, and we'll sing, In Christ Alone, Our Hope is Found. <laughs> 